Welcome to Room for Growth. A Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. Hello, welcome to Room for Growth. We are live in Columbus, Ohio. So last week, Billy, I was with you in Charlottesville, and uh, today you're with me in Columbus. Can you tell it's budgeting season and end of year? We're on the road talking to a lot of clients, but good to have you here in Columbus. And for those that watch on video, some I've gotten hooked up with a like some new decor in the background. So I don't know if that's like we've hit it big at this point. Yeah, you're pretty classy, yeah. though. I will say your decor here in Columbus, Ohio is a little more country chic than mine is in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I have like a library. On brand, me. on brand. What do you want to talk about today before our, our guest, Jeff Tang? Well, I have to do a quick name drop because as you know, our friends at Delta did it again. I had the weirdest flying experience that I've ever had in my life. So yeah. I get on my Delta flight. Billy and I were together in New York City this week. And then I was heading back to Charlottesville. I get on my flight. I had gotten upgraded. So I had gotten a beautiful push notification letting me know that I was first class that flight. So nice. I sit down and the flight attendant hands me a card. Mm. And she said, just want to thank you for being, you know, the status that you are on Delta. We appreciate it so much. She gives me, Billy, a hand signed card card hand signed here it is like hope you enjoyed the flight my services were enjoyable it was a pleasure to meet you and serve you today it's customers like you so shout out cheryl from atlanta-based flight crew 100309 the idea that somebody handed me a handwritten card in addition to how much they like already know me make me feel like loved as a passenger at the holidays Delta's my new yeah. family now. Nobody yeah. else is sending me handwritten cards. No, this so. is why Delta, they like in the ratings of airlines and customer mm-hmm. satisfaction every year, they they dominate. And yeah, they're the best. I, the, it also, it's like the looking at the picture that you took of the card. It's a real handwritten card. It's a note. real it's like handwritten card. one of card. these like fake robo created no. written notes. And it just, how did it make you feel? Warm well, and Cheryl was my flight attendant and she was so nice. She, I yeah. mean, obviously like the kindest woman ever, but just to be handed a card and thanked for being, you know, obviously somebody who uses Delta yeah. quite a bit, man, it like went the mile. I've been thinking about it for days. I obviously wanted to talk about it on the podcast. Yeah. I come from direct mail and that used to be such bread and butter for me where something that was really common in the space I worked in was figuring out like who should get a hand signed anything. Like right. even if you just address an envelope, with ink instead of yeah. instead of a printed letter, it is so much more highly opened. Yeah. But I think about that concept a lot. Like what's the idea of something being truly handwritten in email or in push or an SMS? Like how do you give it that feeling? Yeah. So- we also, you know, we talk about personalization all the time, which that's like the ultimate form of personalization. Yes. We talk about uh, AI and all these advanced things. And it's like the simplest thing yes. goes the furthest and no better power than the power of a handwritten note. Shout out to Dr. Steve Eisman, my college professor in public relations at Ohio Northern. He was just like adamant about the lost art of handwritten notes and how far it can go. So, you know, all this advanced stuff that we're talking about, it's this this basic tactic. Now, the argument that people would sometimes have about this type of tactic is creepy. You can go into any marketing room and start brainstorming cool ideas. And inevitably, there's that one guy that thinks all tactics are creepy. I don't think that's creepy at all. I think that's really Oh, yeah. Personal. I don't think it's creepy. It may, it, I don't actually think it would have even been creepy if it had my name on it because right. they knew I was going to be on that flight today. 
I think people do not actually find personalization creepy unless it is a miss, unless it doesn't apply to them, unless we're trying to loop them into something that's not organic to them. People find personalization. It feels like that warm hug. It feels like walking up to an actual person at a sales counter and having them help you and having a good experience. Or like to this point, it feels like when your family sends you a Christmas card or somebody who actually knows you and cares about you. It is, it is such a good touch. So challenge this week for all marketers. It's the holiday time. It's the season where people are looking for that standout. What manual thing, what creative thing could we be doing that gives that sense of the handwritten card syndrome? There's a lot of things that we can be doing in channel or you can be doing in CPG. You know, this might be something we talked to Jeff about today is how do you make a CPG product stand out on the shelves? I know there's some examples from last season of liquor companies like putting little hand knitted sweaters on their products, just a few of them so they feel really special or really stand out. But Awesome. Um, a fun challenge for marketers, I think. Yeah, and we love you, Delta. Uh, we want Delta to come on our podcast. I'm, they're busy, so uh, but one day we'll get somebody on the, the podcast from Delta. Uh, if you know anybody at Delta, we'll take recommendations uh, for future podcast guests. But today on our podcast, we have Jeff Tang, and Jeff is the VP of Marketing and Revenue Generation at Wicked Kitchen. And uh, looking forward to talking about him. Wicked Kitchen's a CPG brand. And uh, that comes with just a whole host of challenges. All this, when we talk about loyalty and uh, in a lot of the industries we work in, hospitality, QSR, um, there's access to customer data, but there's a whole nother layer of challenges when you talk about the walls and the aisles of a grocery store. Yeah, a bunch of things here. So it's like a niche brand, right? Because it's plant-based. So it's reaching primarily vegans or people who are concerned about the environment, people who shop in a really conscious way. And then of course, everyone else too. Um, They're a startup. So how do you go to market quickly? How do you get word out about your product? CPG just has the entire notion of there's operations and there's marketing and they have to go really hand in hand. And then I think we'll get super into like, how do you measure ROI from marketing when you cannot always track direct-to-consumer sales? It's a huge challenge that we know about. And then Jeff has a journalism background and so do I. So we'll probably talk a little bit about how our communication backgrounds translated into um, different types of marketing roles. Cool. Awesome. Well, with that, let's get to our interview with Jeff Tang. Well, welcome to Room for Growth. Today's guest is Jeff Tang, the VP of Marketing and Revenue Generation at Wicked Kitchen. For those who don't know, Wicked Kitchen is a plant-based food startup that sells ready-made products across the country. Jeff has a fascinating background in journalism, CPG marketing, and career coaching. He has received a bachelor's degree in journalism from Northwestern and has an MBA in marketing from Darden. Jeff is a passionate storyteller and advocate of authentic and joyful company culture. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Wow. Uh, Billy, you could follow me around anywhere and introduce me in that way to anyone. Uh, that was that was lovely. Thank you. So great to be here. Yeah, anytime, man. So uh, before we we've got a bunch of questions uh, for you today. You know, we uh, have not had a lot of discussions around CPG on the podcast. So we've talked a, a little bit about B2B commerce, a bunch about QSR and loyalty. Uh, CPG marketing comes with this whole host of uh, own challenges. So we're excited to dig into that. But before we get there, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Um, where are you from? Uh, how'd you get to this point in, in your career? That uh, is a big question. So I'll do my best to be concise. Uh, I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, son of immigrants from Taiwan and um, in a working class family and and loved having that kind of American pie childhood. Lived in China for a little bit and 
was excited to go, to go to college, but had no idea what, really what I wanted to do. And my mom came home from work one day and was like, you know, you're like, you're not like your younger brother. You're not like a math prodigy or you're not like a, you know, like a political prodigy, but like, you're pretty good at a lot of things. And you like theater. I was in musical theater at the time. And he's, she's like, maybe you should just be a TV reporter. And I was like, <laughs> okay, yeah, that sounds good. And didn't look back. Right. And so I went to Northwestern and was a television news reporter for seven years in um, Louisville, Kentucky, and in Nashville, Tennessee, and loved it. And then ended up making a move to marketing, which was uh, super different and happy to talk about that um, at length as well. But I think that TV reporter background for me has been kind of a spine for me in terms of how we treat people, uh, how we crave connectivity in this world, and how we tell stories that are meaningful and make each other feel something, right? Like it's the one life that we know for sure that we've got and, and how do you do this in a way um, that is full of integrity and enjoy and, and it's been a wild and fun ride. Well, Jeff, you and I have two things in common. We both have a background in journalism. I was also in journalism before I switched over to marketing and we both went to Darden School of Business. Yeah. So I am curious what sparked you to move out of journalism? Did you sort of have a moment of burnout, a moment of tire, which is sort of my story? And then what made you decide to go to business school and, and was it worth it, frankly? 100% love that question, For especially for those who have been in the journalism world, whether it's in TV or in print or multimedia right, or, or in magazine. It's a tough industry. It's a very sexy industry, right? And on the good days, there's nothing better than telling an incredible story that has so much meaning for your community. But for every good day, right, there's a bunch of days where you're talking about parking tickets or you're talking about some really difficult to explain political issue or, you know, scammers finding old people and taking their money, right? And stuff stuff that was really, frankly, not as fulfilling, right, on a day-to-day -day basis as um, I was hoping for from a career. So there was a little bit of that for sure, right? It's a bit of a meat grinder industry. I was making less than $25,000 a year as a reporter at the NBC station in Louisville, Kentucky in my first job. And so, you know, I knew I wanted a family and it was hard for me to, to know whether or not I would be able to actually support a family as a television news reporter. And I think being a really great reporter is, is one thing, but making it right at a level like where you're at the network or something like that requires a huge degree of chance about covering the right story at the right time, being in the right place. And I couldn't guarantee that, right? And so what would give me a better shot at that kind of stability while still being able to do um, that kind of storytelling and that human connectivity piece? And frankly, I had no idea that what I wanted to do when I went to business school, I just knew it would open more doors than it closed. And what I explain to people is like when you're a television reporter, you're like the fingers and the toes of the world, right? Like you, it's how you experience the world. And you were like the first line of, of sensorial understanding of these really in incredible things in life. But what would it be like to be the heartbeat of an organization? And that is what I learned at, at Darden is what it means to be a decision maker, what it means to build strategy, what it means to be a leader of teams and leader of people. And and the fun thing about marketing specifically is it's the same as TV reporting. I don't have a viewer anymore, but I have a consumer, right? And I don't have a story, but I have a product. And I have competitors just like the other stations in town were my competitors and differentiation was really important. And the ability to tell a story on a deadline, right? Like, and to be able to do a bunch of different things and learn a bunch of different things on a day-to-day -day basis as a marketer and elite CPG, you don't just tell ads, right? Like that's a big misconception. Like, oh, you just get to drink whiskey and, and make a bunch of TV commercials. Well, you're 
running a PL, you're understanding the baseline health of your business by looking through the Nielsen data, you're working with your operations partners to make sure you have enough product and that your work, your plants are working at utilization, right? And you're working with the sales team to make sure we're delighting our customers, our key customers, and on and on and on. You kind of have your hand in all of those different hats. And it felt incredible to be the heartbeat of an organization, but still be able to have those human storytelling components in your day-to-day as, as well. So I, I, 100% worth it. And Darden is a super, super special place, Billy, as I'm sure you you feel as well. Definitely. I think more important, as much as I'd give a shout out to Darden, give a shout out to your local news people. They are service workers and pillars of democracy. Be nice <laughs> Love working it. hard. Totally. 100%. Jeff, so your background is interesting since you've uh, kind of um, moved from journalism to working in CPG and, and you have uh, some background with Cliff Bar and General Mills. I know Cliff Bar was at one point a startup, but uh, I believe during your time there, it's a pretty large organization and certainly General Mills, one of the largest. And I'm just curious how your experience in kind of big traditional CPG space now at Wicked Kitchen, uh, a startup, much, uh, I would assume, you know, we want to hear from you, much more nimble and small that comes with certainly benefits and challenges. How do you think, how do you leverage that big background in, in your new role? I think it is essential to have had that background for me. First of all, right, when you're a startup and you're an insurgent, if you want to beat the big guys, the best way to start is to know what the big guys are like and how they work. So I've kind of been in that room, right? And so it's from that perspective, super helpful. But Probably most of all is that um, like going to General Mills is really MBA marketing finishing school is what a lot of us kind of refer to it as, which is to say you learn a ton in your two years in, in business school, but there's so much more about marketing that you don't get a chance yet to kind of learn. And all the stuff that I kind of talked about earlier, like really understanding data at a level that can help you find key insights to move a business and to change your strategy. Like that's, you only get the tip of the iceberg at business school and you really do the full integration kind of um, at an elite place like General Mills, where there's other associate marketing managers that who've done it, who can walk you through it, where there's real structured talent development opportunities to really help you. They did this something called First Wednesday. At the first Wednesday of every month, they would bring in incredible marketers and incredible speakers to help you really stay close to like remarkable marketing that's out there, right? So it really was the place where I built and developed my marketing infrastructure and groundwork to become the marketer that I am today. And so Cliff is fun, right? Because it's not as big as, I think it's, you hit the nail on the head, Billy. It's like large to medium to small, if it ever were that way, right? So Cliff was about 400 at the headquarters at the time. And, you know, I'm a rock climber and deeply, deeply passionate about doing everything we can to save this planet that we have. And it was a dream for me to be able to be there for four years and to really take all the stuff that I learned from General Mills and apply it in a much more big kind of sense, right? Like when I went to to Cliff Bar, we were like, hey, we like messing around in the kitchen and making really delicious stuff. And I'm like, that's cool. But what about our consumer? And like, oh yeah, we'll talk to the consumer. Once we're in market, we learn more from them that way. I'm like, well, what if we started with the consumer, right? And really understood the functional, social, emotional needs that they have and really start delivering, right? And so that's some of the groundwork and the education that I received at Mills that really helped me at Cliff. And it wasn't just me, certainly at Cliff. There's a number of us kind of pushing that and really helping Cliff an incredible company with a beautiful culture also start to like add that kind of more human-centered, consumer-centered part of their repertoire, if you will. 
So let's jump into how Wicked Kitchen got started out of that. I mean, that's such a great segue to talking about the business you launched for yourself. So Wicked Kitchen is 100% vegan meals. How did you decide to start it? Why that product in particular? And then give us a little sense of your market. Who are your competitors? How do you differentiate yourself? Yeah. So... It was started by a vegan chef uh, named Derek Sarno about five years ago. For those who don't know, like the world of vegan food, Derek and his brother Chad are kind of like OG, like vegan chef celebrities. So in these circles, it's fun to hang out with them and see all these people who've really just admired the incredible work that they've done with plants to really take things that we kind of view as boring, right? And just make magic out of them. Like what Derek and Chad can do with mushrooms is just continues to blow my mind to this day. And so taking that culinary approach into the world of consumer packaged goods, where there isn't like this big world of plant-based vegan options that are delicious, right? Like the American stereotype is that vegan food tastes like cardboard. And I've been vegan for a few months now, and I'm astonished by the number of options out there our products, of course, amongst many, but that really make it a viable path for us in a way that wasn't true maybe 20 years ago, right? So in any event, um, Derek uh, helped uh, a company called Tesco, which is like the biggest retailer, grocery store retailer in the UK, start this Wicked Kitchen brand. And it's really not just frozen meals. We actually have over 150 different SKUs, SKUs in the UK across every possible need state. So from ingredients like tofu to frozen meals, to refrigerated meals, fresh meals, to ambient state sauces and nutritional yeast and seasonings and um, desserts, like everything in the UK. So it's a really, really huge deal in the UK. And uh, so about the last year and a half or so, we've been working um, to, to replicate that success here in the US and um, have some really, really wonderful partners um, like Kroger and Sprouts that, um, that we're working with to kind of really expand our distribution. And um, it's, been, it's been a ton of fun. Yeah. You know, it's funny as we were preparing for this, I'm like, wait, wait, this looks familiar to me. <laughs> we are not vegans in my household, uh, but I was at Kroger not too long ago. And so I have a couple of your products in my uh, pantry now. I haven't made it, but some of the kind of like meal kits uh, type of thing about. And I think, you know, it's kind of a lost art of roaming the grocery <laughs> store aisle because, you know, we tend to use Instacart and delivery. And so I find like the same stuff comes, but that impulse kind of experience yeah. of like roaming around I'm like, oh, what's this? This looks pretty cool. And certainly you all have done an amazing job at the branding side, you know, to capture somebody that heck is not a vegan and is like, let's give this a try. But is that a challenge for you guys? Like the, you know, most people are just clicking the same exact thing over and over again on the Instacart third-party services. I love that question for a couple of reasons. One, it's funny. People are like, always like, well, what makes a great marketer? And I always tell people like, if you ever find yourself lost in the grocery store because you're like, that's a cool end cap. Oh, wait, wait, why, wait, hold on. Tuna comes in pouches now. Like, well, why would it, why would that happen? Like, oh, that's an interesting pricing strategy, right? Like grocery shopping is without question my favorite hobby. It has always, <laughs> always, always been long before I was ever a marketer. And so it kind of makes sense to me, right? And so it is kind of one of those uh, secret kind of ways in for me to understand how somebody's brain works is to talk to them about grocery store shopping because you're exactly right. Finding that impulse buy is something that's amazing. And I will tell you, I, I think Instacart is an incredible platform and the convenience is fantastic. But for me, right, like I will never be able to walk away from what you, what you just talked about, this lost art. It's like I have a record player at home, right? So I'm, this, <laughs> I'm just like old school, I suppose. So I love that. The other piece, though, that I love is that like, how do you get people who aren't vegan to eat Wicked Kitchen? And the reality in this 
ladders back to your earlier question, Billy, about who your competitors are, I view our competitors as everybody because over 50% of the American population, whether knowingly or unknowingly, is reducing their meat intake, right? And it could be is something like, oh, the doc says I got to eat less meat because my blood pressure is too high or my cholesterol is too high to people who are like, I understand the ramifications that meat has to our planet, that it has to the animals, right? And it runs the whole gamut, right? And so the reality is, is we want to build an inclusive, positive brand where we are plant pushers, not meat shamers, right? Where we really are embracing the idea of eating more plants, but not sacrificing taste in the process. And that's where with Chad and Derek, so long story short, Chad and Derek are still intimately involved in our in our business. And we just adore working with them and hearing how their brains work. And they continue to push the envelope from a culinary perspective. And, you know, you can't replicate that, right? And that to us is kind of the secret sauce. So Billy and I, though, talk a lot about how you engage consumers, how you get them hooked, how you get them loyal. Like eventually we are going to ask you to talk to us about the brands that you are really loyal to because we're obsessed with this. Like what makes somebody make repeat purchase decisions, decide to make that first purchase decision and then stay really involved. So what does Wicked Kitchen do uniquely to, again, like first reach their consumers and have a brand that draws to them? What's sort of the strategy there? And then what do you do to engage your consumers as they decide to try their first product and then whether to make a second purchase and become that loyal customer? Great question. I think the reaching consumers piece has a bunch of dimensions. I think one, we have a lovely built-in network of people who are committed in their plant-based or vegan diets and their journeys. And a lot of those folks know and understand Derek and Chad. We have a really, really fertile YouTube channel where we have dozens and dozens and dozens of videos and recipes out there that Derek and Chad have put out there. So we're, you know, we're thought leaders and content creators in addition to being producers of food. And so I think that creates real depth of engagement and relationship building for those consumers. But then really for just like you, right? Like, hey, that's really interesting. What's that product? You know, we've talked to consumers and we understand that Wicked Kitchen with the chef's knife and um, really playing up our culinary chops, if you will, is an important way to help people rethink what plants mean, that they're not just, uh, you know, I'm going to have a steak and then I'll have a couple of pieces of asparagus. That's what I think about with plants. Plants can absolutely be center of plate as well, right? And helping people wherever they are on that journey. And so for us, I think the most important thing as we move forward, and this is kind of the role of our team, the marketing team moving forward, is how do we separate ourselves from a lot of other food, plant-based food companies out there? And I think there's a number of things that make us different, right? One is we're not a tech company. So there are some food companies who are like, look at this miracle uh, that we made from plants, uh, and which is awesome, right? Like I celebrate that, but we are a culinary brand first, right? We're about making delicious food first. Not We're not about science. We're not about technology necessarily, right? Like we're not against it, but that's just not where we hang our hat, right? But then on top of that, like how do we take a stronger, bolder edge, right? We're not going to go in to like a macaroni and cheese category and give you the exact same macaroni and cheese because that's not very culinary, right? You'd be deeply disappointed if you went to a nice restaurant and they're like, here you go. It's a lot like craft, right? Like, but we're going to add our own culinary twist to it. And you will find, right, like in our meal kits, Billy, when you go open that stuff, you're like, that's a lot of lemongrass, you know, or you'll be (laughs) like, that's a huge seasoning packet, right? Like, we're just not afraid to do that. And Derek and Chad are unapologetic, right, about creating that type of flavor profile. We acknowledge that that's not for everybody, but that's the whole point is like, we don't want to be for everybody. We want to be about 
um, full, full flavor first. And if you are kind of a basics down to earth person, that's awesome. We, that's great. And we may not be the right choice for you. Right. And I think being unapologetic about that is a really important kind of component to who we are. Cool. Can you talk a little bit about how digital plays in this? So even before, you know, and I've already referenced it here, you know, our last few conversations have been all about customer data and loyalty programs and, and this personalization uh, tactic that's, you know, everybody's talking about, obviously. Yeah. How do you do that in your environment where Wicked Kitchen has no idea until I just told you that, um, at least I don't think, um, that, that I purchased one of your products? What's the strategy here? Yeah, because I think digital marketing in the CPG world is uniquely, you talked about like, oh, we've done direct to consumer stuff. We've talked to QSRs or whatever, right? Like, but the interesting thing for us is, first of all, the world of data uh, in just the 10 years, right? That I, since I graduated has, is just wildly, wildly different. Like what we can do from segmentation and targeting and programmatic connected TV, right? It is extraordinary. And yet we're still not all the way to the point where like, we know exactly to your point, Billy, that like, oh yeah, you saw an ad, Instagram or Facebook or on YouTube, right? And now you rolled in 14 days later and you know we after four and a half exposures for 17 seconds of these ads, right? Like we don't have that straight through to purchase, right? So that's the missing kind of last link. And I'm sure it's a matter of time before that ends up happening. That's kind of terrifying, I know, to a lot of consumers that that, that level of detail already exists about them. I, and the veil obviously has been lifted on a number of different fronts um, over the years. So for me, sorry, to, again, I'm, the old school theme is going to apply here. I think personalization is a cool endeavor and the technology is amazing. But if you do not absolutely nail what we call the job to be done, right? The functional, social, emotional components of a human being's circumstance of struggle that they are in, and understanding that fun fundamentally and how you will on every dimension deliver for that consumer to make progress in that struggle. If you don't absolutely nail that first, it doesn't matter, right? Like how much data you have. It doesn't matter how in-depth your personalization efforts are. But I can tell you this, that if you absolutely nail the functional, social, emotional needs that a consumer has in a moment of struggle, they're going to think, oh my God, this product was literally made for me. And I have a great example of that. Again, old school. God, this, I did not have any concept going into this conversation that I would sound like such an old person, but, <laughs> but I just fundamentally like drinking my coffee out of a mug. And I know all these to-go cups have these like little tiny holes and you like, <laughs> like you sip through this tiny hole. And I'm like, it's just not the same ritualistic sensorial experience. And yet, of course, all the time I'm on the go, right, with my kids or back when I was work going to an office. And so how might I have a real coffee mug experience still on the go? And there's a company called, and so I started like looking into this. And sure enough, there's a company called Fellow that makes a wide rimmed, like metallic coffee mug that has a top to it that fully seals off. So like if you leave in your bag, it doesn't spill everywhere. And there's like a splash guard that goes into the middle of it. I'm like, oh my God, you made this for me, right? You nailed the functional components of it. You nailed the social components, which is like, I want to be like, everybody's like, oh, cool. What's that? Oh, I'm like, that's right. I'm fancy and I know what I'm doing, right? Like, and uh, emotionally, right? Like there's nothing like we all know, right? The best part of waking up, right? Is sitting down to that cup of Joe, the steam is rising off of it. You get to smell it deeply and you get to enjoy it 
without like parsing up your lips into this tiny little hole to try to like siphon out your coffee. That's not the experience I signed up for, right? I hand grind my beans and I do my slow coffee to suck it out of a tiny little hole, right? Like, no, thank you. So all this to say, right, like is like if you nail the job to be done, then the personalization part gets so much easier because fellow didn't target me specifically. I actually found them, right? And so I would argue kind of turning personalization on its head by saying, let's start with a strategy, right? And let's start with how we execute it. And then we can talk about the tactics, which is digital marketing and social media, right? And, um, and building out those strategies. Will you go just one layer deeper here? We love jobs to be done as a framework for starting on your strategy. And I love that you're just like making that jump. For folks who are not in tech or not in strategy, will you give the 100 level of what the jobs to be done framework is? And then maybe just even some specifics of what were the jobs to be done for Wicked Kitchen? And how did you really build an entire consumer experience around these simple things? I love that question so much. I'm going to do some name dropping now. I'm super blessed to have worked with Taddy Hall over the last several years, both at General Mills and at Cliff Bar. And Taddy is one of the co-founders of the Jobs We Done Theory. He wrote Competing Against Luck with um, Clay Christensen, who is considered the, the father of the late Clay Christensen from HBS. And so I've been really, really fortunate to have gotten to know and befriend Taddy. And, and this is like heart and soul of kind of my fundamental philosophy. I truly believe that no human being has ever purchased anything in ever without having some sort of circumstance of struggle with a functional, social, emotional component. And then they pulled something into their lives to make progress in that struggle. And so that's jobs to be done in like the lay person kind of term. And so how it comes to life. Great examples, right? Like Clay often talks about the newspaper and newspapers, uh, the Sunday paper is an amazing example of one product that does many different jobs be done. And I know this is a super analog example because there are probably some listeners out there like, what's a newspaper? But like for some consumers, right? Like I need, I need something to read while I can eat my breakfast in the morning and hang and spend quality time with my kids. Like, what's the thing that I'm going to do right after enjoying my leisurely Sunday breakfast, right? That's one job. But frankly, there's another one, like, which is like, I need to find a job. Okay, great. That's the classified section, right? Or I want to know who died, like, as morbid as it sounds, right? That Sunday section of the paper. So that's one product that can do many, many, many different jobs, right? Not to mention, I'm going to go to the stores later today, right? There's that little section in the middle, that little big section in the middle, right? Where every retailer in a 15 mile radius is, you know, giving you their flyer, right? So all this to say is understanding like, what's the problem that a human being has, right? And then what are the functional dynamics of it? Like I said, it's got to be a, it's got to have a a wide rim so I can enjoy it and not have to suck the coffee through, right? Like it's got to have a splash guard. That's very functional, right? Social, a great social example is we were doing some consumer work back when I was at Cliff Bar about like on the go breakfast. And this one lady's like, I love hard boiled eggs. I love hard boiled eggs, but I never eat them in the morning during the week. We're like, well, why? She's like, well, I ride the subway. She was in New York. She's like, I ride the subway and eggs are stinky and I'm not going to sit next to all these people with these stinky eggs. Well, that's a perfect example, right? Of a social kind of a set of parameters that we need to be conscious of as we deliver an on the go breakfast to consumers. And then there's emotional, right? Like I think about like Facebook portal or any of these other kind of video devices, like they're sure they're like, they've got this camera and they have this kind of screen and they have this processing speed, et cetera, et cetera. But like emotionally, they connect my, you know, my son and my daughter to my, my parents and to my in-laws 
who are hundreds of miles away. Like there's a huge emotional connection piece to that. That is the most important reason why I would buy a device like that, right? So those are some of the examples. For us at Wicked Kitchen, what I will tell you is we are early stages of that and we are finding some really cool insights. For example, we have uh, some meal cups. They're kind of like ambient state, so not refrigerator, not frozen, meal cups. And they do really, really, really well in Colorado. And it turns out it's because a lot of people in Colorado camp, like whether it be like, and I don't... I, Sure, there's people who are primitive camping, which before I had kids was my favorite way to do it. But there's also like convenience camping, right? And you know what's really great in convenience camping? Something you just pour hot water into, boiling water into. And that's what these cups are. And so they do really well in Colorado, where a lot of people do that a lot, right? And we actually talked to a number of consumers and found that, that was the hypothesis and it was borne out, right? So a lot of companies, really what they end up doing is launching products and then kind of retroactively start to understand the jobs to be done, which is, you know, I've only been at Wicked Kitchen for about a half a year now. And so we're kind of starting to do that. And I would love to kind of evolve that thinking to be proactive and put it, put that to the front of the process, right? Not just in the back of the process. Man, so good. So before we wrap with a couple of personal uh, or fun questions, not personal questions, I'm curious in your space, you know, I mentioned the Instacart, you said you have a great partnership with Kroger. One of the times things when we're talking to a grocery brand, personalization is a major topic of, hey, if you know somebody is a vegan, stop sending them, you know, ads or promotions or coupons for meat products. And it's just kind of completely missing the market. So many chains are doing that. So as I kind of am thinking about your product and uh, it's an incredible opportunity to meet your audience where they are and, and for the grocery chains or the Instacarts of the world to show, hey, we know you, we know that you love vegan products and here's a, a new one that you might not be familiar with. Is that something at the brand level that you guys are, are partnering with? Is that really how you, you start to create traction and, and kind of new product exposure to customers? No, I love that question. I think at a super granular, like blocking and tackling perspective, yeah, we know who identifies as vegan, right? We know that that data through social media and so forth is available, not like with 100% fidelity, but like we generally do. So we talk to them in social media and we talk to them through advertising in a different way than we would talk to somebody who is, like I said, maybe has high cholesterol and is now looking to eat less meat, right? And so there, yeah, like at point of purchase, at a Kroger, our shelf blades will not be like, hey, we're by vegans for vegans, right? Right. It'll have a more inclusive message because we are an inclusive company, but we also know that we have like OG credibility within the vegan food space and we want to represent that to that community. So yeah, we, we will use the data that we have available to us to make sure we target those consumers with different messaging. To your point, help them see like, hey, we are for you. And again, one product can do a number of different jobs for different people. And and so, for example, right, like those meal cups that I was talking about, I had another person who was a personal shopper, ironically, right? But she's like, I'm always on the go and I'm oftentimes eating lunch in a kitchen that I don't know of or in a store or whatever. And like, so these are great for me because I have 12 minutes to eat and I can put hot water into it. And I can eat it in the side, like, you know, wherever I am. And so this product kind of, she pulls it into her life for like an on-the-go lunch under any set of circumstances, right? And so that's another great example of uh, one product doing a completely different job for different consumers. I have a question about how you think about digital marketing spend, and not just digital, but marketing generally. So I see this challenge, particularly for CPG brands, which is there's a constant focus on what was the lift? What was the ROI from tactic X and tactic Y? And in CPG, to your point, you can't always track it one-to-one. Sometimes you're lucky and among probably your most loyal cohort, you might have a 
better sense of who's purchasing at what frequency and um, how are they hearing about you and what sorts of like marketing channels are worth the effort and investment. But we get this question from clients all the time. And sometimes they're thinking about things like, should we be paying for email because we can't actually track it to conversion? Should we be paying for social? Should we be paying for really good content on our YouTube channel? Should we be a lifestyle brand? Like, they are just not sure. And it's really hard to make the table stakes case for here or why you need these things, even though we can't perfectly draw straight lines. Talk to me about how you message with your leadership team about where to invest, where not to invest and why. I think this is uh, such a, a fascinating and important question. And hopefully this answer will be worth, you know, the, all the like learning about Jeff's weird TV career um, to get to this point. I think it has to depend on each individual company, right? Like there's no one, one answer serves all question. And I've worked with different companies with different levels of credibility, right? But for us at Wicked Kitchen with two vegan chefs, OG vegan chefs, like I know we have that credibility. And so when we are pursuing things that don't have clear paths to ROI, if it does um, send across that message in a real authentic and compelling and convincing way, like, I just have to trust that, like, representing who we are in the most integrity-filled way possible is going to be our best chance for success, right? Got it. So your point is when you can put your founders' names on something and you can, like, um, lean on the credibility that's already built with your audience because of who you can leverage, what you can leverage, that that's worth the investment for you versus things that might be risky for you are, like, do we try other influencer chefs selling our product or partnering? Or do we put it on a podcast that's not specific to our audience when we don't have that backing and try to see if they can, like, build rapport with our audience? You're saying that things that aren't associated with that founder story are a little more risky for you, regardless of what channel they're on, where anything that can be owned channel and branded, you already know you have that credibility there. So like double down on those things. Yeah. And I would say like, instead of just like using random other chefs, like Derek and Chad will come hang out with you and they will teach you how to eat like David Fema, who's one of the most famous chefs in Minneapolis. Like his life is forever changed because Chad hung out with him in the kitchen one day, right? So like, that's the type of stuff that we would rather do. And, and again, like, I think at the end of the day, like if we represent ourselves with integrity and authenticity, like, and I, th- I know that that word is such a platitude these days, but like, and we're unapologetic about it. Like, I just choose to believe that's the best way to, to set ourselves up for success and not just always chase ROI. Now, I'm deeply data-driven as well, but you're exactly right. It's hard to compare apples and screwdrivers, right? When you're like, these Amazon tactics have, the, you know, these are your ROAS, right? And like, and we could do this experiential event for the same amount of money. We have no idea what will happen, right? Like, this is why my marketing is uh, sometimes a gut-driven thing as well. And what I would say is, yes, Wicked Kitchen has a founder story, but there is something different for you have to find out what that is for you, right? It may not be a founder story. It may not, it may be a product attribute that is not replicable in other ways, right? It may be some sort of like serendipitous way you've interacted with a celebrity. It could be something totally different for each different person. So don't think, oh, well, we're just not lucky enough to have, you know, like OG celebrity chef founders. Like um, there's a million different kind of ways in. And that's the fun thing as a marketer to say. And as a journalist, right, Billy, like you go in, you may have some suppositions about what the story might be. And you have to be willing to be totally wrong about it. But you have to go in with your eyes wide open and with the curiosity to say, like, what's the real story here? And then once you find it, to your point, doubling down on it. 
Yeah, no, I actually love that answer. In the absence of perfect data about conversion, understand that what you have is your credibility. So it's less about what's the perfect channel mix and more about where does the channel serve the credibility that you have and reinforce it versus cause consumers to raise their eyebrow with a question and be like, can I trust this? Where's this coming from? Is it good information? Oh, I mean, you don't even need me. That's exactly right. It's like I've also done marketing <laughs> once. <laughs> this is what they're teaching at Darden, apparently. They're <laughs> not. I will tell you that. Darden, for all its belovedness, is a bit of an old school business school. And they're getting better, I think, at marketing for sure and some of the data science components. But yes, that's correct. Like you're getting the fundamentals right at a place like that. Totally. Yeah. But they're a leadership school like through and through. Well, with that, Jeff, uh, thank you so much for telling us about uh, Wicked Kitchen. You know, something we did not talk a, a lot about today is you have a background in career development and coaching, and certainly that's something that's valuable to all of us. And I'm curious, what's the best or or maybe worst, depending on what direction you want to take this career advice that that you've received? I think the best career advice I received is through my own failure. <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but like. There was a moment in my career where I didn't leave exactly on my own on the terms that I had drawn up in my head. And you go to school like Darden, and you kind of map out your process and you map out your journey. I'm going to be a marketing leader. I'm going to be a marketing executive. And you start to track to that, right? And you start to keep up with the Joneses and you start to look on LinkedIn. You start to see where your, your classmates are going and you start to listen to your managers. And I got to the point where, you know, I just wanted to keep getting promoted and keep rising the ranks, right? Like that is such a common kind of approach to a career. And I realized that I'd gotten to the point where I would just be like, hey, what do you want me to show you? And I will do that, right? And we just talked about authenticity, right? And credibility. That's not very credible, right? And only through that strategy not leading me to the development that I needed and to the success that I was craving, when I decided like, you know, I want to get to a level of aptitude across the board. And yet there are certain things for me, leveraging the creative process to create joy for others through human-centered leadership that makes the success of others my key metric of success, through human-centered designs that solves fuzzy problems in people's lives, right? And through storytelling that makes people feel something and connects people. Those are the things that I'm about. I'm good at a bunch of other stuff too, but that's what I'm really, really, really about. And if that's not awesome for you, and if that's not an awesome fit for this experience, that is okay, right? Like it's okay to flame out of an interview because of that, because there wasn't a fit. And when I was able to actually do that in an interview and be like, actually, I was asked a question like, how do you deal with direct overt pressure from your manager? I'm like, not good because I believe there's a better way to lead. <laughs> and like, we're, we're gonna keep looking. I'm like, that's great, right? And once I started to embrace me for my own imperfections and me for my own humanity and really leaning into the things that I was passionate about and good at, like, and really embracing the process, right? And not the result of a promotion or the result of a raise or a result of a great title or keeping up with the Joneses. When I like let all that stuff go, it oddly led me to a bunch of promotions and a bunch of raises. I got this amazing opportunity to be a career coach at Darden. And then it led me to this experience here at Wicked Kitchen, the thing that I actually wanted all along. And it, only after I left marketing did it show up because of this incredible relationship with our CEO, Pete Spranza, who's an unbelievable, indefatigable man who just like looked me up. He's like, hey man, how are you doing? That would be the best advice that I could give is like, is really embracing the process and you for who you are instead of kind of constantly measuring yourself up against external things or outcomes. 
And then we are, of course, the whole purpose of this podcast is really to try to better understand what makes brands sticky? What makes consumers really connect with brands and companies? How can we humanize brands, humanize companies and in those experiences? So I always like to invite our guests to talk positive trash about a brand that you love, either because the product experience is great, or maybe they're doing something really interesting in marketing. Um, who do you love and why? So I love this question so much. So right now I'm wearing my Air Jordan, uh, Nina Chanel Abney, Jordan 2s. I am deeply big sneakerhead and I'm deeply, deeply loyal to, to Jordan brand for a real compelling emotional reason, right? Which is I'm a child of the 80s and the 90s. I'm a child of, of the <laughs> Jordan era. And I remember my friend Cal Cusick in third grade came home with a pair of Air Jordan 5s and had the air bubble. And I remember up staying up late at night, just poking that air bubble. And, you know, here's a guy who's scoring 35 points a night flying through the air and like i remember there were like two sizes too big for me but i remember like putting them on and like jumping like i swear i'm jumping higher right and this iconic memory of for me and also by the way right having being the son of immigrants being like that's hilarious your shoes are going to cost about one quarter of that and so there's a whole universe of sneakerheads like myself who are more or less my age who had that kyle cusick poke the air bubble moment and that is irreplicable, right? For me, that's not a word, but that is not replicable, right? You cannot substitute the emotional gravitas that those moments had. There's other great shoes out there, countless other shoes out there, but for me, right? Like nothing engenders those deep emotional feelings like those shoes. And now that I am a grown man with my own income, I love you, mom, uh, but I'm going to spend <laughs> unnecessary amounts of money on shoes because I can now. Right. And so I think that's a great example of deep loyalty that is based off of something that is an experience that is not replicable. And also, I don't think Michael Jordan set out at that time to be like, I just can't wait for a bunch of suburban American kids to fall in love with this brand. I think he was just doing, Michael was just doing Michael and Nike was just doing Nike, right? And I think that's kind of the cool thing that kind of came about all this. Awesome. Love that story. And uh, yeah, Jordan and the Nike brand has certainly been one that's come up a couple times that, uh, and typically... Do they all have the same poke the air bubble story? No, no, but it's typically associated with some level of emotion, which uh, certainly uh, Nike does better than maybe yeah. anybody. And I think some level of inclusion, like lots of people feel included yeah. in the Nike brand right. story. Right. That's right. Which is a really interesting yeah, phenomenon. It's incredible. Awesome. Well, Jeff, uh, we did not have a chance to talk about where people can can find uh, Wicked Kitchen. I think you mentioned Amazon just just now, and I was even thinking like if we had more time, I'd love to learn more about that. But where can where people find uh, if they're not in my situation and they're roaming the aisles of Kroger on a Friday night, um, which is what all the cool kids do? Uh, where can they find Wicked Kitchen? Yeah, right. So we're in all Kroger banners, right? So Smiths and Ralphs and um, King Supers as well, like out west. So all Kroger banners, including Kroger as well, of course. We've got select products at like Walmart, like the meal cups are at Walmart. So like Harris Teeter, we're starting to get into as well. Giant, but Giant and Sprouts are two other really fantastic um, partners of ours. And then to your point on Amazon as well, you can find some of our like shelf stable products. But I'll tell you, our ice creams will change your world. <laughs> My kids every night, Papa, can I have Wicked Kitchen ice cream? I want Wicked Kitchen ice cream. And they have no clue, right, that it's vegan, but uh, they love it. And so I think there are some remarkable products, especially in the frozen meals, the pizzas and the, uh, the ice creams, I think that are really remarkable, which is what I would steer folks to first. 
Awesome. And what about you? What if somebody wants to, to connect with you? Is LinkedIn a good place or any, any other good place to find you? Yeah, absolutely. LinkedIn's great. Uh, and then my Instagram, I actually recently ported over my Instagram handle to working on vegan. It's a double meaning, right? Because I work on a vegan brand, but I'm also a vegan in process, right? Like when my daughter eats a, a pumpkin muffin and leaves half of it sitting there, I'm like, oh, does it go in the trash or does it go in my mouth? Right? Like, um, <laughs> it's not vegan, right? And so like, I love talking about those kind of dilemmas because I think those conversations are really important for us as a society as we really inspire all of us to create positive change to help this planet that we love so much and that is obviously everything to us, right? Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, I say this with all of our guests, but we could have talked for another hour, so we'll have to in the future. Um, thank you to our listeners, especially to our marketing friends. Hearts go out. You are almost through December. Keep up the good fight. You are just about done with the crazy holiday season. We're rooting for you. Um, and we'll see you next week on Room for Growth. 